If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. Jacob has left Paddan Aram. The Lord said to him, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. But rather than telling Laban, his father-in-law and his employer, by the way, that he was leaving, Jacob and his family decided to sneak away. The text is clear. Jacob deceived Laban by not telling him he was running away. It was deception by omission. And it's interesting that he deceived his father-in-law by omission. He deceived his father, Isaac, by commission. So they run away, but Laban catches up to them east of the Jordan in the country, uh, the country area of Gilead. And after a rather intense confrontation, Laban asks for a covenant to be made between Jacob and Laban. And they do this. And chapter 31 ends with this verse. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. You'll notice there's not a word said about Jacob. So Laban goes his way, and now Jacob will go his. And we come to chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Jacob also went his way, went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. These verses are critical to what we're going to look at the rest of our time in the sermon today. Jacob is returning home, having left Padanaram, having made a covenant with Laban and Gilead. He's still on the east side of the Jordan River. And there he is met by the angels of God. We are told very little, next to nothing about this encounter how it took place, what its purpose was, uh, its duration, how long it was. Um, But what we are told is what's important, at least what we need to know. And that is, it was given a name, the place was given a name, Mahanaim, and that means two camps. That is to say, Jacob and his company, his wives and his children, all his possessions, they are one camp. And Somewhere nearby, there's another camp. It is the camp of God. It is where the angels are. And what is implied in this is that there's a camp of God that corresponds to the camp of Jacob. You may remember when Jacob left, he had a dream, the staircase that went from earth to heaven. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. As we saw that the stairway represents, it symbolizes the reality that there is a connection between heaven and earth. You know, in many ways, uh, people think of heaven or what God is doing as being something quite, quite separate and then what we're doing down here. And every once in a while, we'll ask him to sort of intervene, but otherwise... He's not a part of it. And the camp of God is a very clear picture that there is, a, there is an unseen reality that is happening that we don't see. That Jacob is traveling along with his family and isn't everything wonderful. But then he is meant by the camp of God, that the angels of God are there with him. Earth is not left to its own resources. 
And heaven is not a remote, self-contained place. You may remember in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that there is a connection. Before the call of Abram, the people tried to build the Tower of Babel. They wanted to reach to the heavens. But what we see, in fact, it is God's grace that reaches down. It is not us reaching up to God. In Jacob's case, um, as he was on the run, perhaps he imagined that he was on his own. This is when he's running away uh, from his brother Esau. Um, all he wants to do is to, say, to stay alive. And his idea may have been that the divine reality was sort of irrelevant, that God was not interested in what he is doing at all. And in fact, the dream tells him otherwise. And the encounter with the angels on the way back reinforces this. There is, in fact, a camp of God that mirrors the camp of Jacob. It's critical to see this, to understand what follows. An aside here. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 6, we are told this is during the time of the prophet Elisha in the northern part of Israel, the ten tribes. And they are being uh, attacked by the Arameans. And um, whenever the king of Aram says, okay, we're going to attack the Israelites over here, th they're ready for him. Okay. And so he gets really frustrated. He's not able to surprise them at all. And so he brings in his inner counsel. He says, okay, which one of you guys is, is a spy? Which one of you is telling the Jews, the, the Hebrews, where we are going to be? And one of his officers said, none of us, my Lord, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Elisha was a prophet of God, and he was the one telling the king of Israel, this is where they're going to attack, so you need to be ready. The king of Aram found out where Elisha was staying. He was staying in the town of Dothan, and he surrounded the town. He's going to get this guy, so he would stop giving away their secrets. The servant of Elisha's was very upset, and he said to Elisha, what shall we do? I mean, they're surrounded by the enemy. Elisha answered, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are far more, or more than those who are with them. Really? I don't see anybody else. Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That is to say, the servant could not see. And I would argue in many ways, Jacob could not see up to this point that in fact there is something to reality that he can't see. The angels of God are there with him. There, there are two camps. His camp, and that's all he can see, but there is something he cannot see. These are the angels of God. At Mahanaim, this manifestation of the angels was intended not only to reassure Jacob that God would protect him as he journeyed, but more than that, to give him insight into the fact that there is something beyond what he can see, what he can perceive. So it's not just Jacob and his camp traveling along. God's messengers, God's angels are going along with him. I would suggest the same is true of us. David wrote in Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And this is the perfect way to begin our text today, our study in this passage, for us to realize that, in fact, there is an unseen reality. God's messengers, God's servants, in fact, are here with us. We can't see them, and so we freak out you know, when something happens, and we forget that, no, you're not alone. It's not just what you can see. There are things that you cannot see. One more thing. The angels of the Lord are messengers. They are those who do his bidding. So Jacob has encountered the messengers of God. Well, in verse number three, he's going to send messengers to Esau. And in verse number six, the messengers from Esau are going to come back. And so in this way, the way that the author, that is Moses, writes us, he wants us to know there are two dimensions to reality, the one we can see and the one we cannot see. The messengers we cannot see, the angels of God, and the messengers we can't see. The messengers, you know, if you're texting, if you're calling or whatever, you send a letter. Yeah, I can see that, but there's something you cannot see. These are the angels of God. So, Jacob comes up with an idea. Look at verse number three. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Jacob sends the message to his twin brother Esau, desiring peace, if I may find favor in your eyes. It's been 20 years since they last saw each other, 20 years since Jacob deceived his father Isaac and stole the blessing from Esau, or so Esau imagined. It's been 20 years since Esau said, I'm waiting till our father dies, and then I'm going to kill Jacob. Does Esau still bear a grudge? Does he still want to kill his twin brother? So Jacob sends the messengers. Esau does not answer, and instead he is coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. As one commentator put it, nothing could be more ominous than Esau's silence and his rapid approach in force. And what follows, we will see a pattern. That is, Jacob will plan, and then Jacob will pray. And then Jacob will plan, and then he will pray, and then he will plan, and then he finds grace. Now, before we continue, I, I want to make it clear here at the outset, there's nothing wrong with planning, okay? In fact, the Bible commends those who make plans. What is condemned is to make plans as though God does not exist, as though God's not part of the equation, as though he doesn't know what's going on. There's the passage in James chapter 4, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So the difference is not between planning and not planning. The difference is between planning 
saying if the Lord wills or just planning like it all depends on you and on your circumstances. But we've seen enough of Jacob to be a little bit suspicious. Whenever Jacob makes a plan, we think eh, he's, he's up to something, he's up to no good. I would suggest in this chapter we see that that is not the case. Look, if you would, at verses 7 and 8. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So what is driving his plan here is, in fact, fear, in great fear and distress. And we could, one could argue, it's like, wait, wait a minute, Jacob. You saw the angels. You saw the camp of God. You should know better. You should know that there's something you can't see that God, in fact, has promised to protect you. But seemingly he has forgotten. But don't we forget as well? Jacob comes up with a plan. He decides to divide the people into two groups. Again, with the reasoning, if Esau attacks one group, the other one will be able to escape. But then Jacob prays. Look, if you would, at verses 9 through 12. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Again, we might be suspicious of Jacob. I mean, is he praying in faith? Is there an attitude of faith here? Or is he putting it all on God? You promised, and so what are you going to do about it? After all, it was God who told him to return. It's God who made the promises to him. It's God who had prospered him, even though, as Jacob puts it, he is unworthy of such blessings. Jacob is afraid, and not only for himself, but also for his wives and his children. God had promised, I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea. How's that going to happen if Esau comes in and kills everybody? I would suggest to you that in these verses we find a model for prayer. A model for prayer. First of all, the prayer rests on the foundation of covenant, command, and promise. So God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. That's the covenant. God had entered into a covenant with Abraham and then with Isaac. And then secondly, you said to me, go back to your country and your relatives. That's the command. God told him to do this. And then thirdly, I will make you prosper. There's the promise. So there's covenant, there's command, and there is promise. And then there is an appeal to God's mercy. He recognizes God's mercy. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. He said, when I left here, all I had was a staff. I crossed, I was at Bethel, I crossed the Jordan River to go up to Padanaram. And, and look now, I have two camps. And it's not the angels and Jacob's camp, but he has divided his people into two different groups. That's how much God has prospered him. And then there is the request in verse number 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, 
for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. Jacob recognizes here that he is not sufficient. He cannot protect himself and his family from Esau and 400 men. Uh, Esau was the, the wild man, if you wish. Jacob is the guy who stayed in the house, in the tent. Um, and uh, if there's going to be a battle, then in fact, <laughs> Jacob has no chance. Esau is the one who is much stronger. So he says, please, please save me. He is afraid. It's not unreasonable, but not only for himself, but for those with him. And then in verse number 12, he repeats the promise that was mentioned in the first part of the prayer. This is a model for prayer. That we recognize God is into into relationship with us. He has commanded us and he has made promises to us. How can the promise be fulfilled if Esau kills them all? So he plans, he prays, and then he plans again. Look, if you would, at verse number 13. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others that followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead later. When I see him, that is when I see his face, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. Here's the plan. I'm just going to bribe him. I'm just going to overwhelm him with all of these gifts. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 20 ewes, female sheep, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, uh, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. And there is going to be a distance between each of these herds. And each one leading the herd is to tell Esau, these are a gift from your servant Jacob. Um, Someone made the observation the other day that Jacob, in fact, must have really prospered when he was Paddan Aram if he can afford to give these gifts. I mean, this is not an uh, inconsequential. This is a large group of animals that he is giving to his brother Esau. Proverbs 18 tells us something interesting in verse 16. A gift opens the way for the giver and ushers him into the presence of the great. In other words, you have have to sort of give a bribe. You have to to give a gift. In the Philippines, we call it 
lagai. You have to give something and then you can get things done. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, we are told, in fact, that if you give a gift to someone, you need to recognize, first of all, that God gave that to you, and then you and then give it to that person. Or more importantly, God gives you something, and in response, you give back to God. This is from Leviticus 17. For the life of a creature is in its blood. That I think everybody is familiar with. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. In other words, God says, I gave it to you, and now you sacrifice it to me. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Jacob will soon discover that, in fact, grace is the answer, not a bribe. Grace is the only solution to guilt. But Jacob has a plan, so he sends the gifts on ahead. He stays in the camp. He's anticipating a meeting with Esau. He divides up the group and his wives and his maidservants, all his sons. Um, Yeah, tomorrow's the big day. He's going to meet Esau. But what he fails to know is that there is a meeting before that. It is a meeting with the stranger in that night. And I think it should become evident to us as we study this that the two meetings, in fact, they parallel each other They are related to each other. This night encounter is not an accident, and it is crucial for us to understand this passage. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because of the socket of Jacob's hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I would say that all of Jacob's life has led up to this night, up to this wrestling match, if you wish. First with his brother Esau, then with his father Isaac, the matter of the blessing, and then with his father-in-law Laban, about Rachel and then Leah, and then about his wages, and then about him leaving. For his whole life, he has been struggling. Never realizing that he's been struggling with God. He's only seeing what he can see. He doesn't realize that there's a dimension that he cannot see. That in fact, his whole life, it isn't just his brother and his father and his father-in-law. His struggle has been with God. So, Instead of risking crossing the Javak uh, stream, the river, 
Jabbok at night, or in the daytime where they might be caught, he sends his family over at night, and he is left alone. And there a man wrestled with him. I've pointed this out before, um, and it's critical for us to understand. Jacob did not start this whole thing. Jacob's alone, and then a man wrestled with him. Jacob didn't look for someone to wrestle. He didn't know that there was anybody else there. He was alone, and yet a man wrestled with him. It was the other person, the man, who wrestled with him. We're not told how this started, but the indications are it just came out of the blue. Jacob's alone, probably thinking, probably being scared because his brother's coming the next day. And suddenly this guy jumps him, well, we assume that, and then starts wrestling with him. Um, one of the things about wrestling is, you, you know, if somebody comes up and punches you, you can run or you can punch back. But if somebody wrestles you, you have to wrestle back. I mean, you, or you can just lie limp, but you can't escape. If you want to escape, then you have to wrestle with this person as well. Jacob doesn't know who this is, and I'll tell you now, and then we'll continue the story. But it is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Christ. We saw this in chapter 18, where the three men came to Abraham's tent. Two were angels. One was the Lord Jesus before he was born and became incarnate. This is who is wrestling with Jacob. And why do I say that? Well, because as the story goes, you know, you have struggled with God and men and you have overcome. Um, Jacob has been wrestling with God his whole life. He doesn't realize it. All he can see are his enemies, his brother, his father-in-law, even his father who wanted to give the blessing to Esau uh, going against God's uh, promise. In Hosea 12, we hear, in the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. After it's all over, Jacob realizes, oh my, this was God. I have seen God face to face, and I'm still alive. But in the middle of the night, as they're wrestling, he has no idea who this is. All he knows is some, some weirdo, some strange guy has jumped him and is wrestling with him and won't let him go. But it's, it's a tie. It's, it's a draw. Neither one can, can win. The man can't overcome Jacob. Jacob can't overcome him. And so the man says to him, let me go because it's almost daybreak. Not sure why that's important. Um, but it is an amazing request. If, in fact, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, he could easily <laughs> defeat Jacob, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's not even a question. But what he did was he touched Jacob's hip and dislocated his hip. So now Jacob is at a severe disadvantage. He's wrestling with a strange guy. He doesn't know who this is. They've been wrestling all night, and now his hip has been dislocated. Um, and the man says, let me go. But Jacob won't let him go. Now, I don't know about you, but if the guy starts wrestling with me and then finally says, that's it, I, I'm out of here, I want to leave, then go. And yet Jacob won't do that. 
His hip is dislocated and he hangs on for dear life. Why did this man touch his hip? Why not simply pin him to the mat, win, and then walk away? I would argue it was for the purpose of teaching Jacob a life-changing lesson. That he's been wrestling with God his whole life, not just man. The struggle is an important part of the lesson. To simply defeat Jacob would have defeated the point. I mean, you would miss the point. Oh, I lost. Some guy jumped me and I lost. But as there is a night of struggling and having his hip dislocated, he's now at a disadvantage. And yet the man says, let me go. There's something for Jacob to learn. But at some point in the wrestling match, the light goes on in Jacob's head. He realizes this is somebody important. This, in fact, may be a servant of God, a messenger of God. And that's why he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He deceived his father to get the blessing. Now he's at a disadvantage, but he won't let this man go unless he blesses him. It is a plea, it is a prayer for mercy. His whole life he wanted God's blessing. But he sold a bowl of stew to his brother for the birthright. He took advantage of Isaac's blindness and deceived him. He tried to outwit, outfox his brother-in-law. And now he's trying to buy Esau's forgiveness by sending all these animals ahead. I would argue that God would have been justified in not simply crippling him, but taking everything from him, including his family and his life. It's not what God was trying to do. He wanted, in fact, to take away his sense of self-sufficiency, his sense of self-reliance. Jacob's response, I will not let you go unless you bless me, is what God had waited 90 years to hear. Jacob's 90 years old at this point. God has been waiting to hear him say this. After a lifetime of struggling, Jacob realizes that it is only God, it is only God who can bless him. The battling and the grasping, the groping for a lifetime, the wrestling and Jacob's request reveals his ambivalent attitude toward God. Yeah, we'll ask God if we need help, but otherwise we've got it covered. I think Jacob learns this night that it is all in God's hands. And by God's grace, may we learn the same thing today. By the way, in this incident, we find victory and defeat. I mentioned the verse from uh, Hosea 12. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. It's a language of strength. He overcame the angel. He wept and begged for his favor. This is the language of weakness. In this wrestling match, there is strength and there is weakness. One author has called this incident the magnificent defeat. And it can be read that way because it is a defeat. Uh, Jacob limped away, but it is magnificent in the prevailing. 
Another has called it the crippling victory. Jacob did gain a victory, but he limped every day for the rest of his life to show to others and himself um, that he had, well, God had wrestled with him and he had prevailed, but now he suffered. And I wouldn't say he suffered the consequences, but now he recognizes that he is not self-reliant, he is not self-sufficient. When Jacob asked the angel, or this man, for a blessing, the man asked his name, what is your name? It's Jacob, no, no, from now on your name will be Israel. So one author observed the blessing this time was untarnished. No deception going on here. Both in the taking and in the giving, it was his own uncontrived and unmediated. Jacob wants to know the name of the man who has been wrestling with him this night. Um, for some, if you know somebody's name, it gives you power over them in terms of like black magic or whatever. If you know your name, then you can cast all these spells or these incantations. What we find in scripture, however, is that the name of a person potentially points to the character of that person. And to tell someone your name was sometimes an act of self-disclosure. It's like, this is not simply who I am. This is who I am. This is my character. Um, In verse number 30, Jacob realizes that he has seen God face to face. So he gives the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God. Jacob is given the name Israel. By the way, the name Israel and the name Jacob are both verbal names. They're not nouns as such. We see them as nouns, but they're verbal names. Israel, he strives with God. He is striving with God. Jacob, he takes by the heel or he deceives. So Jacob's names are action words, if you wish, not nouns. By contrast, Esau's name means hairy, and his other name, Edom, means red. It's a red, hairy man. But nothing about what he does. So the wrestling match is over, and Jacob limps away. And as one writer put it, after that, things would never be quite the same. There are three reminders of this night. First of all, he is given a new name. In a sense, he's a new man. He's now Israel. Secondly, the place has a name, Peniel. It's mentioned two other times in the Old Testament. It's where he had seen God face to face. And then thirdly, there is the tradition among the Israelites that they would not eat the tendon attached to the hip socket. If you read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this is not mentioned at all in the Mosaic Law. This is simply a custom among the Jews that they don't eat that because they recognize that God touched Jacob's socket. And so that, that part, if you wish, is almost seen as sacred, and so they don't eat it. That's the unexpected meeting. Now comes the dreaded meeting, the meeting with Esau in chapter 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, (coughs) Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. 
he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to him, ran to meet Jacob, and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. One could almost see this as picking up where we left off in chapter 27. Last time these two men were in the same place, Esau was going to kill him. Now 20 years have passed, and the twin brothers meet again. By the way, Rebecca sent Jacob away. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word to you to come back from there. Jacob left empty-handed, and now he comes back with a lot and gives gifts to his brother. He presents his family. Esau's like, who are all these people? And so the arrangement of the family, interestingly enough, the maidservants go first. So Zilpah with her two sons, Gad and Asher. Then Bilhah with Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah with her six sons. Yes, remember Leah had six sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And finally, the wife that he loved, Rachel, and his favorite son, Joseph. But before they come, Jacob goes first. Verse number three, he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. We see Jacob humbling himself before Esau. And here begins the story of reconciliation. I've always found it difficult to read verse number four. I tend to get choked up. What a moving picture of reconciliation. But Esau ran to Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. I would suggest to you that the unplanned meeting is a precursor to the planned meeting. And they are are two separate events, but the story is the same. It is, in fact, reconciliation. Jacob being wrestled, God wrestles him until Jacob says, basically, I give up. I, I won't let you go until you bless me. It's all on you. And now his brother is here, and they are reconciled. Paul describes reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his messengers. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I'm saying that the picture of reconciliation between Esau and Jacob is what we see between us and Christ. And someone might be saying, yeah, Damon, I think you're reaching a bit. That's, you're, you're trying to make connections that aren't there. But consider what Jacob says in verse number 10. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Didn't he just see God face to face? When the man who wrestled with him, I've seen God face to face and I've lived. So how can seeing Esau's face be like seeing the face of God? Because in both cases, grace was shown to him. Grace was shown and there was reconciliation. The angel blessed him, gave him a new name, his Israel. He's a new creation. He is a new man. And now with Esau, Esau in essence forgives him. They are reconciled. They come together again. In both cases, Jacob saw and received grace in the form of a blessing from God, in the form of reconciliation with his brother. By the way, do you notice we are told that Esau ran to Jacob? We're not told that Jacob ran to him. Jacob is limping. He can't run. He has been disabled because of his encounter with God. One might say, but wait, wait, Damon, you, you said he's a new creature, that he's a new creation. He has a new name. He is now Israel, not Jacob. I would suggest that our being in Christ, when we come to faith in Christ, that our being new creatures, that in receiving the grace of God, metaphorically, we still limp. We still limp. We are still broken. And we're waiting for the consummation when the Lord Jesus will return. And our limping, our weakness, is in fact a sign of God's grace. It is a sign that we are new creatures. Someone asked the question this week, and then it was passed on to me. Um, why is it that so many people follow these prosperity preachers, those who talk about wealth and health? Why do they have such large congregations? Why do so many people follow them? Why? Because people don't want to limp. They don't want the encounter with God as Jacob had that would bring with them a certain brokenness. They want a limp-free life. That's what they want. They don't want to be like Jacob. And as a result, they are the poorer for it. They want a life in which there are no struggles with God. They want a life in which there's no limping. 
They want everything to be wonderful. The Sermon on the Mount begins with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think we could say, in line with our passage today, blessed are those who, like Jacob, limp, for they have received They have received the grace of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, too much like Jacob, we plan, we scheme, we worry, and we forget that you're there all along. Because we can't see them, We forget that your messengers are all around us. That you are with us every step of the way. Through your servants. By your spirit. And so we fret. We worry. We plan. We scheme. And above all, we desire a life without difficulty. We don't want to be like Jacob. We want to be like what we imagine Paul is talking about, being new creatures, new creations, no more difficulties in our lives. But a part of being your child is to recognize our brokenness, our lack of self-sufficiency, that we are always, always dependent upon you. We are poor in spirit. May we be blessed like Jacob who limped because of his encounter with you and because of his realization that you are the source of all things. He would not let you go until you blessed him. After decades of scheming, he now realizes the truth of things. I pray that in your grace, we would as well. I thank you for this passage, a familiar passage. We know the story of Jacob wrestling with the man at night. I think we failed to see the full story. I thank you for the wonder of the reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. One brother who stole from the other and the other brother wanting to kill him in response. And when they see each other once again, they hug each other, they kiss each other, and they weep. It's like the prodigal son coming home to his father. There is reconciliation And what a wonderful picture it is. I ask in your grace that we would take to heart the lesson of Jacob. We would recognize and accept our limping and look to you as the source of all things. And 
Dave has entitled this series Trial and Grace, and we certainly see that in our passage today. There are difficulties, there are trials, but there is always grace. Thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for Feli as she travels, you would give her safety and a blessed time with her family there in Davao. And ask that you would bring her back to us safely. As we leave this place today, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.